I'm going to start with prayer, and then we'll dive into the Word. Father God, you are the greatest reality in the universe. And there is nothing bigger or more important or more significant than us knowing you and seeing you for who you are. And so my prayer uh, today, Lord, is that you would be glorified and exalted um, in us diving deep into Scripture, into the book of Colossians, and for you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to press on our hearts your beauty, your power, and your grace, that we would come to know you and embrace you as our treasure and our delight. Uh, Father, that's impossible for us to do on our own. And so I go to you, pleading with you, for you to do it by your grace, for you to shine your transcendent light into the depths of our being, and glorify your name and bring your people joy. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My name is Jeremy. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I would love to do that. So please do not hesitate to grab my shoulder and let me know. Um, if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Colossians 1. So today we're going to be looking at uh, two words in uh, the first five verses of Colossians 1 that, in my opinion, they are the two most important words, when combined, in the entire New Testament. Um, these words appear explicitly in verse 2, and then they're referenced later on. Um, and uh, they are throughout the entire New Testament. They are throughout the entire um, book of Colossians, either explicitly or implicitly. Uh, they've woven their way into Paul's writing, and... Um, you notice Paul never uses the word in his writings Christian. He never refers to believers as Christians in his writing. He always refers, which, which the word Christian was actually likely a pejorative back then. It was uh, Christ ones or Christ followers. It was used as a, as a, as a means to demean the people who were believers, likely. Um, but Paul uses this term in Christ to describe what it means to be a believer, what it means to be a Christian. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time today trying to figure out what that means, what it means to be in Christ. We'll read the first five verses, and then we'll dive right in. Colossians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Amen. So God has, and this really caught me off guard as I was contemplating this, this week, God has somehow designed our time together at the beginning of, of Risen Hope uh, and going through the beginning of the book of Colossians um, by showing us verse by verse what the progress is of a person from being in a state of unbelief coming to faith and becoming a believer or someone who is in Christ. Um, and it's interesting because we've just been covering verses in order. We haven't been doing anything uh, special or, or spectacular and trying to figure out exactly what, uh, how we would paint the picture, but that's what he's been doing. So we've been looking at people becoming believers from a state of unbelief. Um, and in first week, we looked at this idea that, that God's grace and peace, this radical grace and peace comes from God. Paul points it out at the beginning of his letter, and he's trying to communicate what the gospel is, that the gospel is grace and peace coming from God the Father to us. And when that grace and peace collides with the human heart, an unbelieving human heart, 
what happens is God awakens faith inside that heart. And that's what we looked at in week two. And that person who is a believer now can be said that they are found in Christ. But before we get ahead of ourselves, I want to, um, I want to look at the three elements that we see mentioned here that Paul thanks God for these believers possessing. Like this is what earmarks his sort of recognition that they're in Christ. Um, the first one that we looked at was faith. God thanks God, or, or Paul thanks God that the Colossians have faith in Christ Jesus. He sees it as a gift from God for them to believe and trust in Jesus Christ, and, um, <laughs> which is why he's thanking God. We talked about how faith is an assurance or a conviction that's at the root of our Christian lives. And the second element we see here is love for all the saints. So they have faith in Christ Jesus, and they have love for all the saints. And Paul says, I know what you are. You are a Christian. Because that's what makes up a Christian, these two things, along with the third thing that we're going to get to in a a second. And this love um, is really a supernatural kind of love. It is not a normal, uh, expected, natural kind of love. It's supernatural. We are part of God's family, and therefore, um, not just theoretically, but in a very real way, we are, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, closer to each other than even biology could make it happen. Like, biology is not our familial relationships between brothers and sisters who are natural brothers and sisters are not as close to people who you will spend an eternity with in the presence of God. That's our true family. It doesn't mean we should disregard our natural family. It just means that's who our family will be 10 trillion ages from now. And it says here that Epaphras, in verse uh, 7 and 8, Epaphras made known to Paul. Epaphras is this guy that came from the Colossian church. He appears to have been the first missionary to them from Ephesus. And um, he has communicated to Paul their love, and it says, in the Spirit. Their love in the Spirit. And this is interesting because Paul has likely never seen a single Colossian Christian face-to-face. We read that in in chapter 2. And they are separated by hundreds and hundreds of miles. And the only thing that connects them is this, Jesus. And yet somehow when Epaphras comes to Paul and he says, these are the people that we have in in Colossae, Paul says, that's family. That's family. Those people belong to God. They are Christians. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. (laughs) And they are family. Here's a picture of this sort of in the modern context. I have... um, a friend who works at Microsoft, works on main campus, and uh, he hosts or he helps host a, a group of Christians that come together every Thursday in a conference room on Microsoft's main campus. And they praise and worship using YouTube during lunch break, and then they, they open up the Word and they talk about a, a testimony or a story, <laughs> and, they, and they read from Scripture. And it is, I've been there twice, it is one of the most beautiful and amazing things I've seen in the middle, in the heart of Microsoft, this happening in a, in a conference room. You would not expect this to happen. The conversations that happened before this and the conversations that are going to happen after this moment with these people worshiping Jesus Christ in this room are completely different. And some of the people who join this conference, the, the, the group, are not actually physically in the conference room. They're connected by Skype. And some of these people are in other parts of the world. One of them is in India, and he wakes up at 2 a.m. in the morning to make this lunch uh, get-together that these other Christians have on site. Now that, 
is not normal love. He's never seen them before. The fellowship that he has, that, they, that he has with these people is so deep, so rich, so supernatural, so profound that it causes him to wake up in the middle of the night, worship with these people, and then go back to bed. Um, and it's incredible. We should never take that for granted. So we are here to get today, and it, it should be a miracle that there isn't a warring opinions here. We all came here for Jesus. We all came here because we love Jesus Christ. And that unites us and makes us, puts us in one family. And Paul says the third element, the third ingredient that we see in this text is hope. A hope laid up for us in heaven. So we, we recognize in the gospel a hope, a profound hope, and that creates in us faith in Jesus Christ and love for Jesus and for everyone who loves Jesus. It doesn't mean we don't love people who don't love Jesus. It means there's a profound connection between us. And so this hope laid up for us in heaven. This is, these three things are what makes up a Christian. It's what, it's what, when Paul uses the word saint, that's what he's talking about. In verse 2 and 4, he, he uses this word saint. And saint is not a higher level of Christian that really gets righteousness down. Saint means to be sanctified by God. To be set apart for his own purposes and his own plans. And so the, the, the word saint is kind of interesting. It's a category of person that is determined by one factor alone. There's only one factor that determines whether or not you're a saint. God's grace. Um, and it comes to us through faith in Christ Jesus. Um, so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. And according to Colossians 1.12, this is what happens. This is how this happened. We'll get to the first five verses in a second here. But this is how it happened. Um, you and I, who believe and trust in Jesus Christ, are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints by God. God qualified us to do that. And we are now brought into, placed into Christ. It's an astonishing inheritance. We talked about this a little bit last week in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 6 through 7 says this, God raised us up with him, with Jesus, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. This is huge because what it says is that when we are made alive by Christ, the culmination of that is that in the coming ages, God will show us the immeasurable. Think about that word for a little bit riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Later in Ephesians, Paul will use uh, the term unsearchable riches of Christ that are for those who are found in Christ Jesus. I want you to think about this for a second here. I want to paint a picture of what this might look like. Imagine that you have walked in ever-increasing joy through the mountain ranges of God's glory for literally thousands and thousands of years. Every moment, seeing and embracing and enjoying new beauties of Jesus Christ, new glories, new things that catch your eyes. And then you reach what you believe is the crest of these mountains. You reach the final mountain, the apex of God's glory. And astonishingly, 
as you come over the crest, you realize that you are only in the foothills and that you have thousands and thousands of ages of years left to enjoy the one for whom we were made. When Paul uses words like immeasurable, when he uses words like unsearchable, he is saying without end, boundless, ever-increasing delight in the presence of God, in the presence of Christ. But I have to stop because this is next week's sermon, so let's continue with this one. All right. (laughs) What I want to focus on now are the two words, in Christ. Um, What does Paul mean when he says in Christ? Why would he use these words to describe a Christian? And um, these words are, are literally so saturated in his thinking of what it means to be a Christian that they are like I said, all over the New Testament. You do not have to go far to find them on a single page, whether implied or explicit. But I want to look at Romans 6, verse 3, and a few verses here, because I think at what, what it is at the root of being in Christ is clearly communicated by Paul, probably most clearly here. In other places it is, but clearly communicated what it means to be in Christ in this text. So Romans 6, 3, and we have it up here, here. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you were here last week, we read Colossians 2, 11 through 12. And in both Colossians 2, 11 through 12, in this passage in Romans 6, we see Paul use this language of God uniting us with Christ in his death, bringing us into Christ when Christ died 2,000 years ago. And he uses the word baptism to describe this. This is the language that Paul uses. He's trying to point at the act of baptism, which all of you are familiar with. Um, Baptism uh, is when a body is saturated by water and, and in some situations it is lowered into the water and raised in the water, which is interestingly enough the exact language that Paul's using here. Um, and in 1 Peter 3.21, we, we're told by Peter that there's nothing really, like in the act of baptism, there's nothing special about the water itself. The water itself isn't magical. The act of baptism isn't something that has substance in and of itself, but rather it is a visual statement of a greater, more profound spiritual reality that's happened inside the heart of a human being. And in Titus 3.5, we see this uh, reality depicted by Paul. It says, he saved us, that is, God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but he saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this is a supernatural reality. 
because we have been, as believers, washed and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and we are now saved. We have been grafted into Christ, and we are now united with him, as Romans 6 says. Um, And it says here, like in Romans 6, 6, for example, we know that our old self, the old self is the old man, that's the literal translation of it, was crucified with Christ. Our old self was crucified with Jesus so that, in order that, the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The first thing he says in Romans 6 to describe this union with Christ is that God's objective, God's purpose, is, is what's governing his, his direction here in uniting us with Christ is that he is bringing the, the old man, the body of sin, to nothing. At the heart of being united with Christ is God's effort, God's desire, God's act, sovereign act, of bringing the old man, the body of sin, to nothing. Somehow our old self, whatever that means, dies. Now here's the big question. What is the old self? Who is the old self? (laughs) We would all have different answers probably to that question. Um, So I want to ask Paul, who were we in before we were put in Christ? And to be honest, that question really leads us to one of the greatest paradigms of human existence and what it means to be human on this earth. And over the last two weeks, we've touched it briefly. Every time we look at why God saved us and why he needed to save us in order for us to be made right, um, we, we, we delve into this, and we're going to do it once more here. If you remember last week when we were looking at Ephesians 2, we were born into a state of deadness. In other words, the the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ in our natural state, we don't want it. It is not appealing. It's boring. And I just would rather do without it. I'd rather have his stuff than him. And um, (laughs) um, we have to ask now, like as we start to get a little bit deeper in what it means to to have union with Christ, where did that deadness come from? Like, what is the source of that deadness? Did we just all wake up and turn one day and say, you know what, I want to embrace this deadness of pursuing other things above God? Um, or did it come from some other place? Is there another part in human history that we can point to and say, that's where the deadness came from? And I believe Romans 5.12 actually communicates this to us. Romans 5.12 says this, <clears throat> Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. So before we were in Christ, who were we in? And it's the one man in this verse. Let me ask you guys, who were we in? Who, Who knows this one? A little interaction. Adam, who were we in? Okay, <laughs> I'm so glad you answered that. Uh, Adam says we were in Adam. We weren't in Adam Mitchell. We were in Adam, the first man. And Adam sinned. This is the way the Bible opens up. God created the world, perfect, beautiful, the cosmos. <laughs> and then by chapter three, things have gone terribly sideways. Adam sins. And then it says here in this text that when Adam sinned, death spread through all men. And he gives the answer, because all men sinned. Now, when we read this text, 
Most people, including myself, would read that and we would be tempted to think, well, death spread to all men because all men are, of course, accountable for their own sins. And they do these independently from Adam. Therefore, they are charged with death. And that's a logical way to sort of understand the statement, but there are a few problems with that. Um, First, the text actually never says that sin spread. It only says that death spread to all men. Paul could have clearly said, well, Adam sinned, sin spread to all men, therefore all men sinned, therefore all men die. But that wasn't his logic in this particular passage. He skips over that step. Um, all men have sinned, and all men are accountable for their sins, for sure. That's, that's taught throughout the entire Bible. But is that what Paul's saying in this text? Secondly, the, the, other, the, other, the other problem we have here is this. Um, death is a result of individual sins, for sure. But we know that death is also pervasive, even for those who never individually sin, like babies. We live in a world, as tragic as it is, where children who are born into this world never have an opportunity to make a moral judgment one way or the other, and yet they are infected with the same death. Now, why is that the case? Why does that happen? Um, And Paul answers in verse 18 and 19 in the same area. He says in verse 18 and 19, he says that one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And he says that because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So here's here's the deal. Paul isn't just saying that we inherited sin nature. Anybody who has CNN knows that humanity inherited sin nature. There's not a question about that. In this text, he's not just saying we inherited an inclination or desire to ignore and dishonor God. He's saying... That here, when Adam sinned, when Adam sinned at the dawn of human history, we sinned with him. Why? Because we were in Adam when Adam sinned. Paul is saying that Adam's sin was placed on the account of every single human being at that moment because we are all from Adam. Everyone born into this world is born in Adam. Adam. His one trespass led to condemnation for all men, no matter who you are or where you are. So all of the benefits of being in Adam, having the image of God, being given the commission to go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and bring order and dominion to a world in chaos, all of those things, blessings from Adam are given to us. And all of the curses for Adam's sin are inherited by us, including death. Now that, if you're like me, should sound harsh and unfair. That doesn't seem right. Why? Because of what Adam did. I wasn't even there. Why should I be held accountable for that? How can God be just and right in attributing to us that deadness. We didn't do it. We didn't get a chance on our own. (laughs) And before we grab stones um, and get frustrated with Adam, let's ask a question. Have you ever 
and this is directed at me, ever provided God with any evidence that you would have done the contrary? Would you have, in Adam's stead, refused the serpent and said, you know what, I don't need that. The Lord God is my portion forever. You can keep the fruit. I don't need that. I don't want to be like God. I want to be God's. Let's try, let's try this, uh, this little experiment here. Um, the greatest commandment is what? Who knows the greatest commandment? You guys can shout it out. What's the greatest commandment? Bam. Yeah, that's it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, your strength. All of those things to love him. That is the greatest commandment. It's the greatest commandment because that underpins all other commandments. When you sin, you're making a decision. Do I love God or do I want to do this, which would dishonor him? And so underneath all of our actions, all of our obedience would be this obedience that we love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, and soul and strength. John 14, 15 says, if you love him, if you love him, you will keep his commandments. Your obedience is rooted in a devotion and affection towards God. But here's the deal. Has there ever been a second where you have perfectly and completely loved God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength? Has that ever happened a second in your life? Even just a second? And if you're like me, the answer is no. Um, in fact, I have loved him very imperfectly every day of my life. If that love even exists, sometimes I love things more than him. And so we have really no right or reason to throw a stone at Adam because uh, for him ushering condemnation to all men because, to be perfectly honest, we would have done that same thing. We would have done that same thing. And the only evidence I have for that is every single day of our lives. Um, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Fall short of the glory of God. It means we completely lack the glory that he has displayed to his creation, to his people. We've forsaken the glory. It says no one is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. And so we are born into this world in Adam. He is our head. He is our leader. And through his act of sinning, that one trespass, <coughs> that um, basically made us sinners and condemned us. <clears throat> the question we should have now, if, if that's what the Bible teaches, if that's what the Bible says happened, why would God do this? How is this good news? What is his purpose in allowing this to be the way that humanity is developed and human existence is defined? Um, would it not be better, for example, if we were all born into this world pure, and we had individual rights to make individual decisions, and based on our individual decisions, God would condemn us or not, um, instead of having this condemnation of Adam on our shoulders? Um, and the answer probably is no, because we would have made the exact same decision as him. The only difference between us and Adam is we have an example of what not to do, and he didn't. Um, he had no example because no one had sinned yet. So why would God connect us with a head in humanity where we inherit all of his blessings and curses? Why is that? And the answer is 
Very simple. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is why we are so intrinsically connected to Adam. In connecting us with Adam's sin, God was actually showing us an immense amount of mercy because that was the only way that each of us individually could be made right. Look again at Romans 5. We're going to go through the whole text of this. I skipped around when I gave it to you before. It says, For if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The reason God allowed and designed humanity this way is to save us from ourselves. Praise be to God. Headship, this concept of headship, being in someone, in humanity, means that despite race, despite ethnicity, despite any uh, genetic or geographic differentiator, there are only really two families in this world. There are those who are in Adam, and there are those who are in Christ. And each family is represented and known and their future is determined by who their head is. Remember the commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Bless the Lord. All that is within you, bless his holy name. That commandment, we can't obey it for a single second. But let me tell you about Jesus. There wasn't a single second where he did not perfectly and completely obey it. He adored his father and everything he did, every single thing he did, he honored God in. Never an ounce of disobedience, not even a drop. That's perfect righteousness. That is complete righteousness. Therefore, all who are found in Christ Jesus inherit what? What do we get? What do we get? Even though individually we are not righteous, we have no righteousness to boast on in and of our own, We were made righteous through this union with Christ in his eyes, both through the immediate act of justification and through the act of sanctification that goes from the moment you are grafted into Christ to the end of human history. Our righteousness came from Christ Jesus. We get all of our benefits from him, and it is a glorious thing. The reason I'm spending so much time on this concept today of being in Christ isn't just so that you have an understanding of who you are. This is ontologically at the center of your being. If you have faith in Christ Jesus, who you are, the most profound profound reality of you is that you are in Christ. But that's not the reason why I'm spending so much time on this, practically. We cannot rightly know this book or the book of Colossians if we ignore the reality of being in Christ. This book will be incomprehensible to us because this book was written for people who are in Christ. To know and to embrace. This being in Christ, this concept of being in Christ is not additive. It's not just some extra sort of theological principle that orbits like the moon. It is at the center of what it means to be a Christian. And it is, it was 
the plan from the beginning. Romans 5.14 says that Adam was a type of the one to come. When Adam was made, he didn't make him without a mind toward what would happen. Like when Adam fell, God didn't say, man, I did not see that coming. Jesus, where are you? We need to get on this. That's not the way God saw it. There was no plan B. This was always the plan. There never was. Adam was designed as a type to point to the last Adam, the one who would redeem us, Christ Jesus. <laughs> and so, going back to the beginning, what gives us the right to be qualified by the Father and united with his Son? What allows that to happen? Let's be clear it should not be. That should not be the case. We are not righteous. We don't seek God. We don't love God. How, and we are in Adam at birth. How in the world did the Father make this possible? In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we see this very clearly. For our sake, God made him, Christ Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Those are the sweetest words in the world. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. Us, the least deserving of getting any kind of righteousness at all, get God's the absolute standard of perfect righteousness as displayed in Christ Jesus. So Christ, he comes into the world perfectly righteous, worthy, really, to be accepted and honored as the king he is. <laughs> and then he's traded for the unrighteous, for me, for you, and for anyone who would believe in him. And then he is ravaged and pinned to a Roman cross and the weight of God's wrath is vented out on him until it is fully exhausted. Until there's no more. Every sin punished. Every crime paid for. For those who are in Christ Jesus. So, the one thing I want you to get from today other than embrace the reality of being in Christ is that your hope is guaranteed because of what happened. Your hope is guaranteed. We will forever be with the one who ransomed and redeemed us. And so how do we respond knowing that that's true? How do we respond to this reality of being in Christ? <clears throat> if you don't believe, let me just be very honest with you, trust in Jesus Christ. Receive him for who he is. And I can make you a guarantee that is as certain as anything in this room. 100% confidence. Your first breath of faith in Christ Jesus will be in a different family than you were before. You will no longer be in Adam. You will be in Jesus. And forever will you be in Jesus Christ. If you do trust in Jesus already, 
and you are already identified as being found in Christ, then I want to commend to you for your life, for your joy, every single day that you heed the words of Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Listen closely to what Paul says here. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Not seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. First, consider this. You are with Christ. Paul is not making an appeal for theory. He's not making an appeal to something that is hypothetical or way out there floating in the ethereal realm of abstract. He is making an appeal to reality, existing reality. You are, if you are in Christ, raised with Christ. Therefore, live like it. And so how do we do that, Paul? And his response is this, seek the things that are above because that's where Christ is and you are in Christ. Christ is your life. So the question we have here is how often are your days spent dwelling on Christ? Thinking about the Savior who rescued us. How often is your mind fixed on honoring him and worshiping him with giving him your affection, your attention, your thinking? Or are we scattered doing other things? Not that other things are insignificant or unimportant, but recognize this profound reality for what it is. If we are in Christ, we should have our hearts and our minds fixed on who he is. Christ is your life, believer. He is everything to you. And everything you do is for this king. This is the bedrock, really, of what Risen Hope is all about. Everything's for king and kingdom. Not a thing is outside of that realm. And so my appeal to you for this week is that you would dwell on Christ. Dwell on Christ. Dwell on Christ. Saturate your mind and your heart with comprehending him as you know him to be, reading scripture to grow in knowledge of him, and just praying with him, talking to him, talking to his father. Um, (laughs) Do it on your way to work, on your way to school. Do it in your free time. Do it when you're standing in line at the DMV. Do it when you have time to kill. Kill it by thinking about the one who rescued and redeemed you. All of you, all of you were placed in Christ when he died. And therefore, all of Jesus Christ is on you every day you live. So as we close, and the band can come back up. We're going to have a communion during worship. Um, and um, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you know why we do communion. We do it in remembrance of our Savior. That in the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and the cup, And he told his disciples, listen, this is how I want you to remember me. I want you to remember this act. That the cross that he was going towards would transfer them from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom, the kingdom of light. They would become 
saints. They would go from being sons and daughters of the first Adam to being sons and daughters of the last. So please, Risen Hope, do not take this for granted. Um, If you believe you are in Christ, take the elements and just embrace the great truth that you are now found in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I'm grateful to you for these people. I'm so thankful to you. You know my heart. These people bring me joy. Our greatest hope is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing greater in this world. And as we as a group of believers have started to get our footing in this location and in this area, Father, and as we start to think and, and, and ask questions about what it might look like for us to be missional in Kingsgate and in every single neighborhood represented here, Father, that you would shine your light into our hearts, that we would be so filled and saturated with the Holy Spirit that the reality of being in Christ Jesus would become so sweet, so beautiful to us that when we go out into the world, Lord, that we would bring your light with us, that people would ask us, why do you hope in this Jesus? Why do you have hope when things are falling apart? And that we'd point to who we are in. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit, as we worship and, 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 and take communion, Father, would commend to our hearts the great truths, my heart is included, that we have talked about today, Father. And that we would be rooted in this concept of being in Christ as we go forward in the book of Colossians and that you would enrich us in knowledge of you and in the peace that only you can provide. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.